chapter 3. And reading this very familiar verse, verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. These tender pleading words of Jesus have forever been immortalized by the famous painting of Holman Hunt, uh, The Light of the World. And in that picture, uh, Jesus is depicted with a crown of thorns on his head and a lantern in his left hand, and he's knocking on a door, an old door that's covered in ivy and weeds. And he's waiting longingly, lovingly, for someone to open the door. But the door remains firmly shut, and no one opens it. And there's no handle on the outside, because the handle's on the inside. In Revelation, we have this image of Christ standing outside the door of the church of Laodicea, and he's knocking, and he's speaking, wanting an invitation to come in. So I want to take that image of Christ and direct our thoughts this evening for a few moments to a more personal application. What can we learn from that image about God? What can we learn from that image about ourselves? That's what I want to share with you tonight. First thing we can learn about this image is it is God who takes the initiative. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It is God who takes the initiative. It was God who took the initiative in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, in fact, you may want to turn with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said... Let there be light, and there was light. And in verse 6, then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, then God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed. Verse 14, then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Over and over and over and over again in creation, you see, it was God who took the initiative. I find it Interesting, by the way, just as an aside before we move on, I find it interesting that the book of Genesis 
out of all of the books of the Bible is the most attacked. It's, it's most ridiculed. It's the one that faces the most opposition out of all of the books. Why would that be, do you suppose? Because right in chapter 3, verse 15, God shows the very demise of Satan himself. And he hates this book. And he hates it because it shows the origin of man. And the biggest attack today is the origin of man, the story of creation. It's been attacked from every quarter to try to denigrate this story, to try to make the book of Genesis to be nonsense and, full, and, and false. In fact, Jeremy Paxman, uh, just there uh, a number of months ago when he was interviewing uh, Mr. Dawkins, that avowed atheist, in fact, he got to wrap the knuckles over it, he said that the book of Genesis, he called it hogwash. Stupid people who believe it. But it's a very important book. It's a very important book for us as believers as well. But I find it interesting that in the first 11 chapters, which Genesis, the book of origins, it talks about, obviously we read it there, the origins of creation itself, of life on earth, the origins of the universe, basically. It talks about the origin of man, God making man in his image. And then it goes on from that, and it talks about from the creation of man all the way through to the flood, to man is destroyed. And only Noah, only eight are left, Noah and his family. And then out of that family, the earth is populated again, repopulated again, until we get to the, uh, the Torah of Babel, where God comes down and scatters the people upon the face of the earth. And so, only 11 chapters is taken to describe all of those vast things, the universe and the earth and creation and the flood and the fall of man and, and sin coming into the, everything. And, and it's done in the, in the broadest terms. And yet from ver chapter 12 all the way through the next 39 chapters is the history of one man. Abraham, and from that man came a nation. And that man's family and the origins of that nation is shown in the minutest details. And of course, we know that then from that nation came one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so C.W. Slamming said the first section we shows that Man created in Adam. But the second section, the last 39 chapters, shows man called in Abraham. But altogether, it's showing you that God took the initiative. God initiated this. We see God took the initiative in creating Adam. We see he took the initiative in creating Eve in chapter 2. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of, every, and out of the ground the Lord made grow everything that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
It talks about a river going out. And then verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may free to eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat you shall surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. God now is taking the initiative once again. He looks at man and says, I don't want him to be alone. I don't want him to be lonely. I want to make someone for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had made had taken from the man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And so we see here again God taking the initiative. And if you read into the chapter 3 again, you see that God took the initiative again. Whenever man fell, when he disobeyed the Lord, and he did that which was unlawful, and sin entered in, then God again takes the initiative. And he clothes them. When they were naked, he clothed them with, with tunics of skin. And that's when he made that promise. In verse 15, chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so over and over and over again, we see that God takes the initiative. In chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then make rooms in the ark. And then it goes on to describe it. So again, God here is absolutely taking the initiative and making sure that his plans and his purposes will go on to succeed. Nothing surprises God. Nothing sneaks up on our God and takes him by surprise. He knows everything before it even happens. And then, of course, if we read in chapter 12... Verses 1 to 14, you'll see that God took the initiative with Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and made him into a great man, friend of God. What a mighty man 
He was. And God blessed him. And then through him came the nations. And that particular nation that is there to this day. And through that nation came the Son of God. And so God was always taking the initiative. He took the initiative of the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and David, all of them declared that God had them in mind before the foundation of the world, before they ever came from their mother's wombs, that God had a plan and a purpose for their lives. That was God taking the initiative. He took the initiative with his disciples, all of his disciples. It was Jesus that called them to himself. And every single one of us tonight, saint or sinner alike, it's God who takes the initiative. It was him who came to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Standing implies patience. It implies patience. How long did God stand outside your door and my door? He had a lot of patience with me. I wasted so much of my life. But thank God he was patient. How long did he wait on you tonight? Peter says that God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any one of us should perish, but all should come to repentance. Patient, long-suffering. Aren't you glad for that tonight? Think of, well, some of you maybe saved from childhood. Some of us were in adulthood. But think how long God waited and how tender-hearted he was and how patient he was, drawing us on himself, standing outside the door, waiting for us. So standing implies patience on God's part. Standing knocking implies persistence on God's part. How long did God wait? How many times did he knock? Now, if you're anything like me, I heard him knocking quite a few times. But I didn't open the door. And my guess says that most of us heard him knocking long before we opened the door. We felt that prompting. We felt that tugging. We felt that conviction of the Holy Spirit. We felt we should do something. Can't keep living this way. And all the time, he was knocking. How many times did he knock on your door? But it is us who has to make the response. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Notice two things here. God knocks and God speaks. I like to think that the knock is the providential hand of God. In other words, His hand in our lives before even we were saved. You know, once you get saved and you look back over all those years, usually it's only then that you can see the hand of God in your life in the past. How he maybe spared you. How maybe near death you were. And in his mercy he spared you. And he saved you. Or how that he got somebody to cross your path. 
suddenly somebody worked beside you who was a believer and started to witness to you. I remember the place I worked, there was a Baptist Christian and his locker was right above mine. And it got a wee bit of annoying. He was a lovely man, precious brother, but a wee bit annoying because it seemed to be every time I went to the locker, he was there. And it seemed to be that God used him a lot to speak to me. Sometimes I was convicted without him saying anything. He was a godly man, and I knew he was a godly man, a lovely man, a lovely, precious man. And sometimes just being near the man convicted me, and God used that man. And this is the providential hand of God, uh, uh, doing things behind the scenes of our lives, causing divine appointments to happen to us. You know, maybe you, you moved and moved home somewhere and suddenly you find yourself living beside a, a believer or, or, or in the workplace or in school or uni, wherever it may be. But this is God's providential hand. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, it talks about uh, Saul, the son of Kish. Uh, and Kish, uh, <laughs> some of his, his donkeys had walked away and got lost. So he said to Saul, take one of my servants and go and look for my asses. And so he did that. And they went here and they went there and they went yonder. There was no sign of them. And after three days, he got tired of it. And he said, you know, they'll be worried about us at home. He says, uh, I think we should just return. Uh, and then the servant said, you know, this town we're close by, there's a prophet lives here. Samuel. There's a prophet lives here. And if we go to the prophet, well, he'd, he'd maybe be able to tell us something. And Saul says, well, we don't have any gift to give the prophet. I've only here a quarter of a shackle, but, but that'll do. That we'll, we'll go to the prophet. And so he went to the prophet. And it just so happened that, that the place where they're about to give up and return was just right beside where the prophet lived. And so it just seemed to them fortuitous. Lucky. But it was God who had taken the initiative. Because what they didn't know, that God had spoke to Samuel the day before and says, there's a man, a Benjamite coming and I want you to appoint him to be king over Israel. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine going out looking for your father's donkeys and coming back the king of Israel. Eh? You think God's hand was in that? I think so. And that's, you can read the story. That's exactly what happened. Samuel told him, Is not the desire of Israel upon you? Who, me? I'm the least in my father's house, and, and our tribe's the least of all the tribes. I'm a Benjamite. Did you know that? Yeah, but God's chosen you. God's hand's on you. You're going to be king. You know, this is the providence of God. You think of, of young David in 1 Samuel 17, 17, when his father says to him, Look, your brothers is out in the battlefield. Look, there's some cheese and some bread and some victuals. Go out and give that, to, that's your brother's lunch. Just go and give it to them. And little did he know, or they know, or his father know, or King Saul know, or the whole of Israel know, that before that David out, he would be the greatest hero in Israel. He'd have slain the giant Goliath. Just seemed a, a small incidental thing to do to deliver his brother's lunches. But the hand of God was in it. And if we look back over our lives, you'll see the hand of God. 
You'll see the hand of God. You'll see God's providence shaping and marking, directing, guiding, even we didn't know, to get us into that place where we're challenged and we come to Christ. So the knock is the providential hand of God. And the voice is the prophetical word of God. And that may come through a sermon, or a song, or a dream, or a vision, or the Spirit of God, or a gift of the Spirit, or any number of ways that God can find to get through to us. Maybe just that still, small voice speaking into our hearts. In John chapter 10 and 3 and 4 and verse 16 and John 18, 37, for sake of time and because of the heat tonight, I'll not labor it. But if you look at those verses, you'll see how God speaks and how we as sheep know His voice and recognize His voice. And so God does speak. I don't mean with an audible voice. He may or he may not. You could go through your whole Christian experience and never hear the audible voice of God. That's not the issue. But he does speak. Oftentimes through the word of God or through a message or through something. Somebody says something to you and it's God speaking and God guiding and directing. And so the knock is the providential hand of God. The voice is the prophetical word of God. The knock is for admittance. The voice is for assurance. Let me just read this little verse to you. In Acts chapter 12. Again, you'll know this story very, very well. Peter's released from prison. Supernatural released from prison. Remember the prayer meeting was going on in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. In verse 13 of Acts 12, it says, And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a little girl named Rhonda came to answer when she recognized Peter's voice. Peter's knocking. And she comes to the gate. If somebody knocked your door at midnight, your heart would be jumping out of your chest, wouldn't it? You'd be thinking the worst. Who in the world would knock my door at midnight? And you'd be going out and you'd be kind of putting the lights out and looking over behind the curtain and juking and looking, scared to open the door. And then the voice said, It's Billy! Billy, that's all right. As soon as you know the voice, it's easy to open the door, isn't it? And so Peter knocked to Rhoda came. And he must have spoke. He must have said, it's Peter. It's Peter. And she recognized his voice. But dear helper, she was so excited, she let him stand there. And she ran in and she said, it's Peter. They said, you're mad, you're nuts. Couldn't be him, he's in jail. But it wasn't, he was standing outside the door. 
And so the Lord knocks at the door of our hearts looking for admittance. But he speaks and that gives us assurance. And you come to that point where you know God has spoken, don't you? He's been knocking and knocking and knocking and you're not too sure is this or is this not. All these strange feelings I'm having. But then he begins to speak and you know this is the Lord and he wants to come in. But the handle's on the inside, isn't it? So we got to open. We are the ones who got to make the response. And then it is God who desires intimacy. For he said, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Imagine the Lord of heaven and earth wants to dine with us, wants to fellowship with you and me. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? That the creator of the ends of the earth, the God of all glory, actually desires that we come into his presence and he comes to us and we enter into fellowship and relationship. He came to where we were, remember. Philippians 2 tells us that, that he took upon himself the form of a servant, became in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he came and lived amongst us. He came from the glory and he took on a human body and he came to live in this earth to completely identify with us. What a wonderful thing the gospel is, isn't it? And so he wants to come and to dine with us, come to where we are in the house, on the job, in our class, in the car. You can be driving along in your car and suddenly his presence is there. Suddenly he wants to speak. He wants to whisper something into your heart, an assurance, a confidence, something to encourage you. And this is the wonderful thing about Jesus. Remember Sikes, the little tax collector up the tree? Today, I must abide at your house. <laughs> Calm down. I'm going to eat in your house today. What a thrill that was to that wee man. Absolutely changed his life, didn't it? Wasn't expecting that. Sure he wasn't. Just content to see him. Everybody was talking about him. And he climbed the tree for his smallest stature. If I can just see him. See what everybody's talking about. But he had been thinking about him. He'd been wondering about him. He had been very curious. Because to go into that crowd and to climb that tree, to be one of the most hated men in the whole community, that took a bit of courage to do that. And Jesus stopped and he says, Come down. Today I'm going to abide in your house. And just by saying that, just totally changed that man's life. Never was the same again. And paid what he owed. Made restitution. That was a good sign he had truly repented, wasn't it? 
Then, of course, in Simon's house, Simon the leper and Simon the Pharisee. You know, Jesus had lots of meals in people's houses. <coughs> Seemed to love having meals in people's houses. It's very sociable, was Jesus. He loved to go and just to dine and sit there and talk and chat and bring the conversation around to eternal things and spiritual things. And if you read those two stories in Mark 14 and Luke 7, the house of Simon the leper and the house of Simon the Pharisee, what stories they are. And of course, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, what a, what a home that was. That was a special place for Jesus. That was somewhere where he absolutely loved to go. I mean, he just felt right at home with that family. There was something about those three, those two sisters and that brother that just made him so comfortable, so easy just to be there. And he could just kick back and relax and just be totally at home in that little house with those three. What an absolute privilege that must have been for them to have the master sitting with them and dining with them continually. Of course, we see him at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, standing there watching all the proceedings and all the dancing and all the fun that was going on. It would last for six or seven days, maybe eight days. And then when the wine ran out, he blessed that whole wedding, didn't he? Did his first miracle at a wedding. That's significant in itself, isn't it? It just shows you the heart of Christ. He just loves to be around people and to fellowship with people. And whenever we come to the house of God, he's in our midst because he wants us to fellowship with him. He wants to dine with us and for us to dine with him. Notice here, I will dine with him and he with me. See the order here. I will dine with him and then he will dine with me. Two tables, our table and his table. Now when he came to dine with us at the start, before we were saved, what was on our table? Sin, rebellion, stubbornness, foolishness. That's what was on our table. That's all we could offer him. We had nothing else. We were lost in our sin. But what was on Christ's table? Mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, faith, hope, love, eternal life, heaven. What a table he spread before us. But he had the dime with us first. And you know, when he came to this earth and he went to that cross, what did he take upon himself? Our sins, our rebellion, our stubbornness, our wickedness. He had to deal with us first. And thank God he did. And thank God he dealt with his mercy and forgiveness and righteousness. Then after he dined with us, after we become born again of the Spirit. Let's see what's on the tables now. Let's see what's on our table now. When He comes to us, what's on our table now? Praise, worship, prayer, dedication, service, sacrifice, love. That's what's on our table now. What's on His table? Holiness, 
righteousness, His power, His Holy Spirit, His calling, His gifting, His enablement. It's all changed, isn't it? And so when He comes to dine with us now, He comes to hear our praise, to hear our prayer, to receive our love and our worship and our adoration and our service and our dedication. And in return, we receive His righteousness and His holiness and His calling in our lives, His enablement, His Holy Spirit. What a difference. He took the initiative. We're going to close just in a second. In Revelation chapter 19. Verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of a mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was to be granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are the true sayings of God. What a supper that's going to be. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I have been to more wedding suppers than I can count, than I can remember. Some were good, some were bad, some were indifferent. Some of the food was wonderful, some of it not so hot. But you see this wedding supper, <laughs> this is going to be the best, the greatest, the biggest, the happiest, the most joyful. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. And you know what? We'll not be the guests because we are the bride. You say, well, who would the guests be? I don't know, maybe the Old Testament saints, maybe the patriarchs, but we're going to be the bride. And we're going to be sitting at the head table right beside the bridegroom. Aren't you glad for that? And that'd be lovely. It'll be brilliant. Somebody gave me this a long time ago. It's a wedding invitation. It says, you're urgently and respectfully invited to be present at the marriage supper of the Lamb, to take place at the coming of the Lord, the grandest affair that can ever be known, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands attending, music by the angelic choir. Gabriel will play a special on his trumpet as the saints of God come marching home, singing by the blood-washed throng, Special wedding robes for the splendid occasion, starry crowns for all who attend. The king's royal palace will be illuminated with the light of eternal glory. Introductions to the holy of all ages. Wonderful and marvelous things to see and hear. Inspiration at a high degree to thrill the soul. Don't fail to come. Jesus bids you come. Surely he wants you to come. Rewards given by the king to all the faithful. Reserve seats with Christ upon the throne for the overcomers. The dead in Christ will be raised and living believers changed to take part in the grand march of eternal bliss. Accept the invitation now. And at the bottom it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Whoever will, 
Whoever will let him take of the water of life, whoever will let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation 22, 17. Isn't that wonderful? Song of Solomon chapter 2 says he brought us into his banqueting house and his banner over us is his love. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. I will sup with him and he with me. What a blessing, what a pleasure it is to know the Lord tonight, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your table tonight is filled to overflowing with good things. Lord, you bid us come into your presence to sit at your table. And we thank you for that. We bless you that you're a good God. We thank you, Father, that you are a loving, generous, merciful Father. And we thank you for giving your Son, Jesus, to come to this sin-cursed earth to give his life for us. We bless you for that. So, Lord, tonight we rejoice in your mercies. We thank you for all of your goodness. We thank you that we can come at any time, at any moment, and we can dine at your great table. We thank you, Lord. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.